0: The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. So let's go now to the Word of God as we finish out our series on Hebrews this morning. Uh, Let's turn our attention to His Word.
1: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book, the 13th chapter of Hebrews. Verses 7 through 18. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. Desiring to act honorably in all things, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner.
0: Thank you, Susan. Pray with me. Our great God, we thank you this morning that that you've given us your word, that you've spoken to us. You've not left us to our own devices and to our own thoughts and our own desires, but you have led the way in Christ. And Father, we know that your word reveals him in all of his truth and glory and majesty. So would you come this morning by your spirit and would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? May we sit under the authority of your word as listeners, as hearers, that we might be doers. Lord, Jesus, make Your love and Your grace and Your mercy clear to us that we might be radical givers, generous, self-sacrificing, and yet cheerfully doing so. Lord, we need You this morning. I am the chief one who needs You. Meet me in my weakness. May Your power be made perfect. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I read this week that 60%... Or 66% of those born between 1984 and 2002, those that we know as the millennial generation, um, believe that churchgoers are hypocrites. That's a great thing to know, isn't it? Um, basically, that we are a bunch of hypocrites. And as I was preparing this, I thought, well, if that's what they think about churchgoers, I can only imagine what they think about preachers. Um, it's got to be worse. And um, I know that many in this room can can agree. <laughs> you might even have the same skepticism because I know from many of your stories that that you have been under even spiritual abuse by ministers, pastors, those naming the name of Jesus and yet using their office more to build their own ego, more to prop up their identity than to proclaim the love of Christ and to model the love of Christ to a people and to a city and world. And yet, in our passage this morning, it's interesting that the common thread that is flowing through it, that is woven through these verses, is this whole idea of obeying and respecting and revering church leaders. Isn't that interesting? Three different times, in verse 7 and verse 17 and in verse 24, we're told to obey, to, um, um, to, to revere, to submit, to even imitate. Uh, we see it here in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And I really believe that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. It's that the job and the role of a leader is not to give you a perfect life to emulate because that is a losing battle but to show that in the midst of our sin and in the midst of our brokenness that there is one to go to. It's to preach Christ and Him crucified and ourselves as sinners. That's what Paul said. It's to hold up Jesus and say, more of Him, less of me. And that is what the writer of Hebrews is getting after. He's saying, look, this whole message that I have been thrusting forth in the book of Hebrews that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness because he became just like us, and yet we have a high priest that leads us into the very presence of God because he is the one that that brought down uh, the curtain of the temple. He's the one that ended uh, the sacrificial system in his own flesh, and therefore we have one who is superior and that should be preached and should be lived and and should be honored and that's the job of a, a leader a godly leader is to portray the sufficiencies of christ even in the face of the insufficiencies of self and i've seen this in my own life there are many that i that i see who are leaders in the church that encourage me i think about a year ago rachel my wife and i went to denver and participated in an assessment center for church planners in other words there were um husbands and wives who came to to be assessed on their abilities to be able to plan a church and we put them through a battery of testing and to see how they <clears throat> went you know how they dealt with um, team building exercises and and uh, really uh stress and pressure and so forth and there was a man who had invented uh this system that we implemented and and, and made these Uh, poor souls go through, Um, and and this man was about 80 years old, and he had developed a church planning model or assessment model for Tim Keller's church and their church planning efforts in New York, and um, his name is Alan Thompson, and as I sat with him and I learned from him and I pressed into him throughout the week, um, I found myself saying, I want to be like him. I want to imitate his faith. I mean, here's a guy who's 80 years old. Um, he happens to be Cuban, and he's leading a—he's uh, at the forefront of church planting, uh, of thousands of churches in Cuba right now. And I'm like, that's the guy I want to be like. And it gives me hope that maybe at 80 years old, I can be doing something like that too. Because he's not sitting on the sidelines; he hadn't given up. Um, He—he's—he's he's out there leading the charge, and he's doing so with humility, grace, and love. And so I think that's exactly what leadership should do. It should give us the hope that, yes, the Christian life can be done primarily because of Jesus. And so as we look at this this morning, we get to see some characteristics of leaders, but um, we've heard it said, as our leaders go, so the church goes, well, we are to be like the leaders. And so it's for all of us this morning as we think about this, and let's do so. And the first thing that I think we learn is that godly leadership leads us to feast on the message of grace. It leads us to feast on the message of grace. Not perfectionism, but grace. At the beginning of the summer, I entered into a study with three other men on emotions. Um, You can only imagine. you got four men sitting around a table talking about emotions. Uh, It's been interesting. And yet, a man by the name of Chip Dodd, uh did a Bible study on emotions that I think is, um, is is a message that the church needs to hear because I'm 51 years old and I've never studied emotions, and yet his point is relevant and that is we don't have emotions because of the fall. We have emotions because God created us with emotions, so we need to learn what His intention was in giving us emotions and how to redeem those and use those in a redemptive way to become more human and therefore more godlike. And so we've gone through these different emotions. We're about halfway through the eight core emotions that Chip Dodd and Voices of the Heart um, identifies. And last week, we dealt with this whole emotion of anger. And if you know, and many of you who've been here know, uh, the kind of summer that I've had, um, I can honestly say that I've struggled with a little bit of anger because I've been, or at least I've felt like I've been, in control of absolutely zero. And that's just not my comfort zone. It's probably not anybody's comfort zone. Um, but I've never thought of anger, per se, as a good thing. And yet, Chip Dodd in this study directed me to the reality that, uh, of Ephesians 4, 6, which says, "Do Be angry, but do not sin. Um, I've read that numerous times. What does it look like to be angry but do not sin? And then he pointed us to Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, a time when Jesus was angry. And listen to this encounter. So Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. And so they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They're trying to trick him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around them with anger, hear that, with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out immediately, plotted with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. So, Chip Dodd distinguishes, makes a distinction between godly anger and rage. And what we see is that godly anger is not rage, but it is the emotion that should well end up uh, up inside us when we see someone being mistreated. When we see someone outside of us, see someone who is marginalized, who is oppressed, oppressed, and and the church or others are ignoring them, practicing a religion that does not benefit them. Interesting. And as I worked through this and I began to look at my own heart and all the different emotions that I've been experiencing over the last several months, I realized that some of it was good, that I... that. You know, there are people, I've seen people hurt that I love and there's anger inside of me that has moved me to fight for them and um, and to stand for them and to speak for them and to be focused upon them and not, you know, what others are saying or needing to defend myself or so forth. But I've also seen in the midst of all this that there is a lot of rage in me. And um, it's deceptive, which most of our sin is, because I'm not a guy, if you've been around me, I'm not a guy that flies off the handle. Um, you're, you're rarely going to see me just lose it in that degree. Not saying I've never have, I definitely have, but but that's not my, you know, my M.O. That's not what I typically do, but what I typically do when I am mad at you is I isolate you in a corner and make you feel like I wish you were dead by my, not my anger, not my, or not my loud words are blowing up, but by my what? Silence. So I can kill you with my silence. I can make you feel my rage. I can make you feel um you know my angst against you by me just relegating you over there. And so as I'm going through this study, part of me's looking at God going, "God, don't you know the kind of summer I've had? I mean, I've lost my dad. I've you know, I've lost uh, three staff members, one to a uh, serious crime against people that, that I love. And that, um, God, really? Are we going to deal with my heart right now? I mean, surely we got more important work to do than my heart. And the reality is that God says, yes, Richard, we're going to deal with your heart. Why? Because he hates me? No. Because when life is bearing down on us, we can see sin in our hearts that we're not going to see in any other Situation. And so, what God is after, he, he is always, He always has multiple purposes in taking us through, leading us through uh, tough seasons in life. It, it's not always one. It, there are multiple facets because God is infinite in His wisdom and He can do a lot of stuff at one time. Um, and, and one thing is He can deal with my little heart and my little life. And so, in the midst of this, I've been having to find repentance for the rage that is in me against those that have offended me or spoken against me or hurt me or violated me in a real and serious way. And the reason that God wants to do that is because he wants to show me his love. And and that's what God is after in you this morning. Whatever sin it is that God has been knocking on the door of your heart, knocking on the door of your life, the reason that he's doing that is because he wants to He wants to kill your flesh and open your heart to how high and wide and deep and long is his love for you. But we resist that. And we typically resist that in two different ways. One of the ways that we do that is we minimize the sin by being dishonest. In other words, God says we're sinful. God says we need him, and we need him at all times. But we minimize that reality by dishonesty. What do I mean? Well, here's how I can be dishonest. God, if it wasn't for these circumstances, I I wouldn't feel this rage within. If I haven't been hurt, if, if he didn't do that to me, then I wouldn't. And what is that? That's dishonest. Because what that says is, I'm really a good guy. I mean, I'm really a nice guy. I'm really a loving guy, but these people around me, it's their fault. So if you, you know, it kind of goes back to the garden, if you would get it right, God, and put better people around me, then I would continue to be the righteous man that I am. But what the Bible says about Richard Reeves is that he is sinful, and his heart is sinful above all things. And so when life is pressing down on me, if I'm seeing sin come out, It's only sin that has always existed there. It's not sin that all of a sudden was created by the circumstance. All the circumstance did was show me and give me an opportunity to bring it out in such a way that I'm faced with it. And so we minimize the sin by by being dishonest. But another way is that we resolve to do better. We minimize God's sin by saying, I'll do better next time. I'm going to work real hard and I'm going to show you and I'm going to show those around me that I can be better. But to do that, again, because sin is so deceptive and because sin is so powerful, the only way that we can do that is by running to, uh, to basically using little laws that, that we make for ourselves so that we can make our righteousness and our doing better measurable. You know what I mean? What I mean by that is is exactly what's going on in the church in Rome. The writer of Hebrews rebukes them for looking to food and diet as a way to feel righteous and good about themselves. Um, He says this. He said, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Listen, not by foods. Um, if I were preaching this in Colorado, I could really go a long way. And maybe there's some Whole Foods people in here and some homeopathic people. I actually planted a church in Colorado, and uh, believe me, this is a thing. Um, and it's a thing today for many of us. We think if we get on a, you know, you know what it's like. You've been eating just garbage forever, and all of a sudden for a week, you know, or maybe for one meal, that's about as far as we last. You know, we're going to eat vegetables, and what do you do? You eat your vegetables, you you know, high protein, incredible vegetables. And what do you do? You look around at those that are eating all that sugar. And you just kind of look down your nose like, well, look at you, you know. And that's what the law does. It's interesting. We want to go to the writer of Hebrews and say, really, you just wrote one of the most, if not the most, theologically deep and rich you know, books of the Bible, and you're going to end it by pointing to dietary food laws? Really? And here's the point. Because our sin is so deceptive, instead of running to Jesus and trusting in Him and Him alone as our ongoing life, as our ongoing source of righteousness, we will find almost anything, and typically it's typically very, very small, to make us feel good outside of or in addition to Jesus. And there is no little bit in Jesus. Because whatever it is that we're trusting, our ability to work, our ability to run, uh, you know, to do a lot of ministry, our ability to volunteer and everything, our ability to, you know, to bring somebody to church, whatever it is, whatever we look to and feel good about ourselves on, it is detracting from the reality that no, Jesus is my life, Jesus is the source of my hope. Jesus is my righteousness and my righteousness alone. And the reason that we have to trust Jesus and Jesus alone is because everything else that we're trusting can fail us and will. And so the only way that we can live the joy-filled life that Christ has lived, died, and resurrected to give us is by having no righteousness but Jesus. Having nothing that we've done, no obedience that we've adhered to, literally nothing but Christ. And that takes deep honesty and deep boldness and therefore deep repentance. I love what Brennan Manning said. He said, if we gloss over our selfishness, If we just kind of ignore the reality of our selfishness and rationalize the evil within us, we can only pretend we are sinners and therefore only pretend we have been forgiven. Do you want to know what's wrong with you this morning? What's wrong with Richard? Do you want to know what's wrong with the church? Do you want to know what's wrong with leaders? It's we pretend that we are sinful and we pretend, therefore, that we are forgiven. God's grace and forgiveness is not real today. We don't have a present, living, active reality of His, of our sin and therefore His grace. And you hear that and you say, well does that mean I need to go out and sin? No. You are sinning. There is sin in your life that you are rationalizing, that you are minimalizing, and you are not addressing. And so the best thing that you can do is go ask the people that you know and say, would you tell me what my greatest sin against you is? Would you show me, would you tell me, would you verbalize what's wrong with me? What's my sin? And not defend yourself and not blame anybody around you. And you know what? It's going to be hard to find somebody close to you to tell you because they are scared to death. And so, friend, the only way that we can be led to grace and come to these tables this morning feasting on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is if sin is not just some concept, but it is an identifiable reality in our lives that that we have named, that we have felt, and that we have run to God with. So what is it for you? So godly leaders lead us to feast on grace. But secondly, godly leaders lead us to worship Jesus. This is so simplistic. We, we, we see uh, verse 15, through Jesus then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We act like worship is foreign to us. We act like worship is outside of our... Normal daily humanity. Uh, but did you see the Tennessee game the other night, Thursday night? Did, did you watch how Tennessee got behind Appalachian State? And man, you could just feel the tension in, you know, amongst that hundred and whatever thousand balls fans. And you could just see them, man. We're getting near the end of the game. They score, they tie, and they go into overtime again with Appalachian State. And uh, we, we see that they get the ball first. Uh, I can't remember. I don't know the, the team members, and I didn't take the time to look at it. But I think quarterback, whoever it was, running to the end zone, gets to the goal line, reaches over, you know, to put the ball over the line. The App State dude just nails him in his chest. The ball goes loose. And what happens? Tennessee gets it, and that's basically the end of the game. And what happened? A 100,000 people, you know, a 100,000 orange-dressed, clad people on their feet going crazy. Bankers, lawyers, doctors, people that sit in church, if they go to church, scared to move a muscle, acting like they don't know what worship is, are out of their minds, crazy, dancing, throwing stuff. Why? Because they were facing... Dire odds and a dire situation, but a Savior. And the Savior comes and falls on a ball and your whole life is made. You see, the only way that we can worship is if the gospel is a living, breathing reality to us. Not ten years ago, not even last week, not even yesterday... But this morning and all throughout this day, worship flows out of gratitude. It can't flow out of a critical spirit. It can't flow out of anger and bitterness. It can't flow out of anything but deep and abiding gratitude. And if we are going to, to be a people that are continually offering up a sacrifice of praise to God, that have lips that acknowledge His name, I guarantee you... Okay, Tennessee fans, who fell on the ball Thursday night? Anybody? Thank God we have no Tennessee fans in this church. God uh, No. Kidding. You do know. Every Tennessee fan that I know would know. There we go. I know. There we go. We fleshed them out. There you have it. Does the name of Jesus roll off your lips? You see it? Because He has done something living, breathing, relative to you and for you because you know your own heart and you know the dire situation that you're in. And then thirdly, godly leaders don't just lead us to feast on grace and don't just lead us to worship Jesus but they also lead us to be generous and share. One time, I helped a guy get a bicycle. I actually gave him a bicycle because he needed to get to work. And I found out later that he had sold the bicycle. And then he came back to me and he asked for money. And I helped him with another thing and... And and this became a cycle over time. And what I found going on in my heart is not love, but I felt like I was being used and that my generosity was not being acknowledged and probably worshipped. And what I was detecting was someone being ungrateful to me as a gift giver. What What I've witnessed in my own heart and in the lives of friends, family, people in the church, is that we have a huge sensitivity to other people's ingratitude and a very dull, if not dead, sensitivity to our own gratitude to God. It's much easier for me to come up with a list of people that have hurt me, people that I feel like I have loved so well and they've hurt me, they've shown ingratitude, then it is for me to start listing the ways that I have denied God and I've not been a thankful, joy-filled, grateful believer in Christ. As we read the Scriptures, what we see over and over and over again is this reality that God's grace for us, that God's work for us in our behalf is a gift. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, this not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Why? So that no one will boast. You see, his gift is undeserved. His gift is is given to us, and it, it not only is undeserved, but even the faith that we have to believe it comes from him. So we can't even take credit for believing it. And once we even receive it, we are ungrateful over and over and over and over and over again. But he doesn't doesn't take the gift back. He just keeps giving us more gifts. Paul in Ephesians 1 said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You know what that means? He didn't just give us a new car. Because what, what... New cars get old. He didn't just give us a new house because new houses, they they get old and they age and they burn and and, and earthquakes can kill them and tornadoes can take them away. But what has He given us? He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has met us in Christ and secured His love and His favor upon us to the point that no one and nothing, we can't even out sin His grace. And nothing can mess with that. It is the greatest gift. It is the most protected gift. It's the most secure contract because nothing can change it. Because God's work is finished for us in Christ. And if we get a sense of that reality, there is a result. What is the result? What is the outflow of this result? Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do we have that diagram? I didn't use it in the first. Uh, it's, it's that triangle. No? Y'all got it? Ah, there we go. Here's how the Christian life should work. We should use our minds, As I, I, I mean, I just preached to you the reality of our um, um, hope in Christ and a treasure that cannot be taken away from us. You've got to take that into your mind, but that's got to filter down to your heart or there's going to be no real change in your actions. You see, this is how God made us, mind, heart, action, mind, body, soul. This is how we are to live. Take it into your minds. It is to move and to, uh, uh, to, to get deep in your heart so that the proper action of obedience can come out. And what is the proper action of obedience? What is the one thing that, that the writer of Hebrews, after 13 chapters, the son of the most rich Christ, you know, centric theology, what is the one outcome? Share what you have. Is that not amazing? Share what you have. That was the mark of the early church. Listen to Acts chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Wow. This is my iPhone, folks. Don't come up here and try to take it. I mean, I wasn't there in the early church. Unbelievable. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus and great grace was upon them all. What did this great grace look like? Was it speaking in tongues? Was it people getting hit? Listen to the great grace. There was not a needy person among them. Is that not amazing? For as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. Church leadership, we're not even going to try to control you in our great generosity. We're going to put it at your feet and you do with it what you what you will. Unbelievable. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called. Who who also. Try that again. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money again and laid it at the apostles' feet. What is the evidence that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the people of God? It's not even. What Jesus said to the rich young ruler, go sell all you have and give to the poor. The writer of Hebrews isn't saying sell all you have and give to the poor. He's just saying share what you have. Bring some equality in the midst of God's church by selling what you have if there are people in need and it's somehow out of whack. Do you see it? It's in Hebrews 10:32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. Listen to this. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Wow. You joyfully, you didn't, oh, I lost my house. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Oh, Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We used this a couple of weeks ago, and I've used it many times. There was an unbeliever who made this statement about the early church. He said they were, um, they were, uh, stingy with their bed, marriage bed, basically stingy with their sex, and yet they would share their table with anybody. And then he said, But the culture, we, Romans, uh, share our sex with anybody and are stingy with our dinner table. What would they say about downtown church? What are they saying about downtown church? What are they saying of me? Has the gospel so rooted? You see, here's how you know you're, you're giving because of the gospel. You can give away and not have control over what people are doing with it. Because that's what God, that's what God does for us. He blesses us. Everything we have today is because of Him. You say, well, I've worked for everything. I, whose air did you breathe working for everything that you have? You say, well, I've, whose intelligence did you use? Where did you get your work ethic? What family were you put in? Do you see it? We can't, we are not responsible. God has given us these gifts. And we abuse them and we take credit for them and we don't even give him acknowledgement. Unbelievable. And yet, what does he do? He wakes us up and gives us more breath. That's what we must become. That's the kind of community we must be. Mother Teresa must not be the only saint out there who is passionate about mercy and sacrificial giving. This is to be the body of Christ, not an isolated incident for illustration use in a sermon. Now do you feel a need for Jesus? Now do you feel a need to come to these tables? Now do you feel a need to fall on your face before God and said, forgive me because I have to repent even of the good stuff I've done? Because the good stuff I've done has taken me further away from my need for you because I find myself depending on all the good stuff I do as opposed to seeing my desperate, radical, present need for the blood of Jesus. That's the difference between a Christian and a non Christian. Everybody repents of the bad stuff they do. But a true Christian repents not only of the bad stuff, but of the bad stuff mixed in with the good stuff that they do. He said, even my righteousness is filthy rags. Because even when I do something good, even when I, you know, can feel myself being humble, I'm proud that I'm being humble. I mean, do you see it? So dear friends, may we come to this table, these tables this morning. May we rejoice in the living work of Jesus Christ for us. If we don't see sin in our hearts, if we're blinded to it, if we feel our flesh rising up, say, no, 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 he's not talking about you, he's not talking about you, don't you... Ask God, cry out to God, say, show me my sin, show me my self-righteousness, show me what you need to change in me, show me. That's how desperate we are much of the time. We need God to open our eyes to why we need God. So may we do that this morning. May we meet at these tables and may we drink in the abundant grace that is present. God wants to give us His love this morning. And the only thing holding it back is our self-righteousness and our unwillingness to genuinely repent and see the present blood of Jesus for us this morning. Our great and glorious God, thank You. That You don't give up on us. Thank You that Your love is not like our love. Thank You that You come after us with the pursuit of such fierceness and such passion that ultimately You get us. And so God, this morning as we come, I don't know where everybody is, but I pray that You would just come after us hard. Lord, we know that You're present, but we need You to get in our face. We need You to to get eye to eye with us and show us the reality of our brokenness so that we might fall into Your loving and gracious and merciful arms. And Lord, help us to live there. Help us to camp out there. Help us to build our house right there and build it nowhere else. Oh God, we are broken and we need to know how broken we are. So would you come and show us that we might drink from the living waters? That we might stop drinking from the cisterns of our own works and the cisterns of our own self-righteousness and our own pride and arrogance. Oh God, humble your church that we might drink in your grace, that we might be radically generous to our neighbor. That this world might know that you are God. God, would you do that among us? For the glory of Christ, for the honor of His name, and for the good of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.